Hey guys, welcome back and thanks for joining me. I'm your host, Sherry, and you're listening to From the Dark Side. I'm testing a different microphone today, so bear with me. Today we are going to talk about a case from the Midwest. A man who was living the American dream begins receiving some threatening letters in the mail. This is worrisome, not just for himself, but he has a wife and two young boys in the house. These letters are going to turn this family upside down. Many things are going to unfold things no one saw coming. The last letter received reads, this is my last warning. Your nightmare is about to happen. This is episode 80, the case of Chris Coleman. This story happened in 2009. 2009 was a year that gave us the death of Michael Jackson The H1N1 swine flu was considered a global pandemic. We had this huge increase in mobile technology with the 3G network and improved operating systems. Everybody's phones were suddenly like super phones. Nothing like we have today, though. General Motors and Chrysler both filed for bankruptcy. President Barack Obama accepted the Nobel Peace Prize in Oslo, Norway. And lastly, the biggest food trends were chicken pot pie and macaroni and cheese. Chris Coleman grew up the son of Ron and Connie Coleman, who are both evangelical pastors in Monroe County, Illinois. He and his two brothers were raised in a very conservative household. Obviously, mom and dad are both pastors. He grew up in the church, and their faith and being in the church was a very big part of Chris's childhood. According to an article from Jeanette Coolerman for the St. Louis Magazine, which was a huge source in this research, Chris was taught to base a lot of his decisions on scriptures from the Bible. He was known to be a very good child. He was sensitive and reserved. Once in high school, his parents went away and he got drunk with friends. He felt so guilty that he began crying and called his basketball coach and confessed. Chris joined the Marines right after high school. He received awards and certifications and did really well in the Marines. When he was 22, he met a pretty young woman who was a year younger than him. Her name is Sherry, and she was an MP in the Air Force. This is 1997. Chris is 22, and Sherry is 21. They dated for a couple months, and Chris brought Sherry back to his parents' house to meet them. Ron, Chris's dad, described the visit by saying, quote, We didn't pick up on anything, except she was a worldly little girl, little short shorts and tattoo on her leg, not the kind of person we thought he'd be with. I don't know why, but that just rubs me the wrong way. (laughs) They were only there for a few minutes, and Chris says he's going to run her back home. The next day, Chris calls his dad and says, guess what? We got married. His dad stayed silent, 
He asks his dad why he doesn't seem excited for him before realizing that the reason was likely because they weren't married in a church. Chris was upset that he disappointed his dad and also because he feels himself he should have been married in a church but was caught up in the moment. It was later revealed that Sherry was pregnant, like in the very early first trimester. Remember, they had only known each other for three months, so that was likely the reason they hurried up and got married. Pregnancy before marriage is frowned upon in the Christian church. Sherry gave birth to their son Garrett in April of 1998. Just two years later, in January 2000, she gave birth to their other son, Gavin. Chris and Sherry have a Christ-centered marriage by all accounts, like if they get in an argument, they pray about it, things like that. The two boys love sports and attend a lot of games and extracurricular church activities. The family also does these mission trips out of the country, where they basically come and tell you about the good news and Jesus is your savior. Sherry is a stay-at-home mom and devotes her life to Christ and her family. She organized trivia nights at the church. Friends say she is a wonderful person who was well put together and ran a great household. For some reason, Chris's family never really accepted her, though. Chris gets a really good job. He goes to work for Joyce Myers Ministry. If you're not familiar with Joyce Myers, she is a televangelist, a very popular one. She's been on TV since the early 90s. Joyce was married in 1967 and is still with her husband today in 2023. She has a revenue of $112 million. She is a speaker, an author, a podcaster, a TV host. People love her. Think of a female version of Joel Olstein. She takes a private jet around and she lives at a $20 million home. Well, Chris gets a job as her chief of security, basically her top bodyguard. His salary is $100,000 per year. This afforded he and Sherry a beautiful home, and Sherry gets to be a stay-at-home mom with Gavin and Garrett. Chris has to travel a lot with Joyce. She's doing these speaking engagements all over the country. As her bodyguard, he's got to go wherever she goes. Chris and Sherry seem to have a good marriage for the most part, but they had some tensions over money. Sherry was constantly buying things for homeless people and donating money to various charities and even organizing a trip to a leper colony to spread the word of God. I mean, I guess if you're going to blow your money, giving it away to the less fortunate isn't a bad way to do it. She's helping others. Chris even asked one of his friends, what would you do if your wife spent $1,000 in one shopping trip using your credit card? He also told his friend that he made $100,000 a year and still drove a piece of shit car. Joyce Myers catches wind that there's some tension in Chris and Sherry's marriage and issues with money. So she sits Chris Chris down and she recommends that the two attend couples counseling with one of the leaders in her church. The traveling was hard on their marriage, but Sherry knew it had to be done in order to pay the bills. So she just dealt with Chris going away all the time. When Chris would leave for these trips with Joyce, Gavin and Garrett kept a calendar where they would keep, keep track of the days until their dad would be home again. Sherry took them to all their games and events, and Chris went along when he was home. In November 2008, Chris begins receiving these odd emails. Working for Joyce, he's seen a lot of crazed fans and other types that send threatening messages, but these were beyond that. The email account that the messages were coming from was called destroychris at gmail.com. The first email message he received had a subject line that stated, 
Fuck Chris's family. They are dead. The body of the email states, I'm sure this will make it to someone in the company. If you jackasses are like any other company, this will be someone's account. Pass this on to Chris. Tell Joyce to stop preaching the bullshit or Chris's family will die. If I can't get to Joyce, then I will get to somebody close to her. And if I can't get to him, then I will kill his wife and kids. I know Joyce's schedule, so then I know Chris's schedule. If Joyce doesn't quit preaching the bullshit, then they will die. During the Houston conference, I will kill them all if, as they sleep. If I don't hit there, then I will kill them during the book tour or the trip to India. I know where he lives and I know they're alone. Fuck them all and they will die soon. Tell that motherfucker next time to let me talk to Joyce. She needs to hear what I have to say and now she will. The second email was shorter and read, quote, I know you all got my fucking email. You think I'm full of shit. Just wait. I will shoot their asses with my 40. Kill them all. I'm so sick of bitches like her taking everybody's cash so she can fly her jet and pamper her white ass. Fuck you all. Tell Chris I will kill them. He has no idea when, but it will happen. The emails eventually turned to letters. In January 2009, Chris was getting his mail and sees a letter inside. He opened it up and it read, Fuck you. Deny your God publicly or else. No more opportunities. Time is running out for you and your family. Have a good time in India, motherfucker. So this person is obviously off the rocker. Some crazed person wants to kill Chris's wife and two son because he's angry about Joyce Meyer spreading her message about Christianity and taking money from people. Chris contacted the police about these emails since now his family could be in danger. The police officer he contacted was his neighbor, Officer Barlow. Officer Barlow says he will keep an eye on things, and he even installed a security camera on his house that pointed at Chris's mailbox. Chris went to the police again in April 2009, this time this to an actual police station, because he was still receiving letters. The last one he received read to stop traveling and to stop carrying on with this fake religious life of stealing people's money. This is the last warning and that your worst nightmare is about to happen. On May 5th, 2009, just 10 days after he received the last letter, Chris heads out to the gym around 5.45 a.m. He works out for a bit and he's calling Sherry, but she's not answering. He wants to make sure she is up with the boys. He calls back and she still doesn't answer. So he reaches out to his neighbor, Officer Barlow. This is 6.43 a.m. He says, look, I'm leaving the gym, but I'm not able to get a hold of my wife. She's not answering the phone. Can you go to my house and see what's going on over there with my wife and boys? Officer Barlow doesn't get an answer at the Coleman's door. Another officer who was in the area joined him and goes around to the back of the house while Officer Barlow stayed on the front porch waiting for someone to answer the door. The other officer radios to Officer Barlow that one of the basement windows is missing, a screen. This is all taking place just one hour after Chris left to go to the gym. They called for backup and then make entry into the house with their guns drawn. Chris pulls up and they don't allow him in the house. What Officer Barlow finds in the house was absolutely awful. The first thing they notice is the overwhelming scent of paint. All over the walls were huge red words spray painted that said, 
punished. I am always watching. You have paid. They go upstairs and find the body of Sherry in her bed. She was naked and had been strangled. They find the body of 11-year-old Garrett in his bed. They move to another room and find the body of 9-year-old Gavin in his bed. Both boys had been strangled as well. The words, fuck you, were spray-painted in red on the blanket that covered Gavin. By this point, the house is swarming with police. A police chaplain approaches Chris, who is still outside waiting, and informs him that his family is dead. Chris falls to his knees. Then he pulls out his phone and calls his dad, who shows up minutes later. Joyce Meyer arrives soon after. You guys know what happens next. Standard procedure is to bring Chris in for questioning. It's the last thing the police want to do to this grieving husband and father, but it must be done. One of the two officers in this questioning room at the police station is Officer Barlow, his neighbor. They ask Chris what he did that morning. He says he got up at 5.30 a.m., went to the bathroom, got dressed, and left. As he drove away, he called Sherry to wake her up and get her going, and she didn't answer. He stops short, and then he resumes. So I went on to the gym, and I called her again on the way back, and she didn't respond. So that's when I called you. They asked him about yesterday in case there was anything strange he noticed. Maybe he had someone following him or whatever. He says he was home the day before. He ran a couple errands, picked up the kids from school, played catch with Garrett, and waited on Sherry to get home. He says she got off work at 4, and then she actually made dinner. Pasta and chicken, and she cut up some kind of pizza. She mixed it all together. And then he laughed slightly and says it was actually pretty good. After dinner, they all walked up to the snow cone stand, and Chris played catch with Gavin. He went to Zach's gym, and then he came back and helped put the kids to bed. While Sherry put steroid cream on Gavin's poison ivy, Chris listened to Garrett's prayers. Then, he says, he and Sherry watched TV. Batman returns, and she fell asleep in my arms on the couch. They ask him about his job as Joyce Meyer's bodyguard. He speaks proudly of her, saying she's on TV in 37 languages in three quarters of the world. Then the questioning went on for a few more hours before Chris is released to leave. A few days later, a huge funeral is planned for Sherry, Gavin, and Garrett. Lots of mourners are gathered at their church. This is like a nightmare for their family and friends. Three innocent people, including children, were strangled to death. Their last moments were terrifying. The police are very tight-lipped about their investigation. They know a lot right now, but they can't blow the whistle yet. While at the service, a female detective there was approached by a woman named Kathy. Kathy is the executive assistant to Joyce Meyer's husband, and she also happens to be Sherry's best friend. Kathy says to the detective very calmly, Chris did it. The detective said, I think you have more you need to tell us. She explains, Sherry was terrified of Chris. I know they seem like this nice, loving Christian family, but they were having a lot of issues. Chris was abusive, and Sherry said, if anything happens to me, Chris did it. She says she doesn't want to speculate, but she owes it to Sherry to, to tell someone. I want to go back to the day of the murders when the chaplain sat with Chris and told him that his family was dead. 
Chris broke down and is hysterical. Once he's calm, the the chaplain asks him why his knuckles were all cut up in red. Chris immediately begins punching the gurney next to him. In the first interview with Chris, the one that took place just hours after the murders, the police ask him why his knuckles appeared injured and there were scratches on his arm. He says he punched a gurney and the scratches were from days before, but he doesn't remember how he got them. During that first interview, the police left the room a bunch of times. They told Chris they had to go to the bathroom, get a drink or whatever, But they were really getting more info being reported to them, but they can't let Chris know what they know. They decided it would be a good idea to use his faith as a way to interrogate him. They ask, believing in what we believe in, knowing we can be forgiven for the sins we do, what do you think should happen to whoever did this? Chris says the person should be put away, and he also says they likely have an explanation for why they did it. Remember, Chris was only gone an hour that morning. When he got there, the police were in his house. Chris left at 5.43 that morning and returned at 6.56. When he called Officer Barlow, he was only five minutes from the house. But for some reason, it took him 13 minutes to get home. If I believe my family is in trouble, I'm certainly not going to take the scenic way home. I'm going to floor it. But for whatever reason, Chris came home very slowly. Although strange and sus, it doesn't make you guilty of murder, though. The medical examiner says that when he got to the bodies, they were already in rigor mortis. The bodies were bluish purple and stiff. He took temperatures of Sherry and Garrett, and he didn't take Gavin's because he had spray paint on him and he didn't want to mess with any evidence there. A man named Dr. Michael Baden, who is the chief forensic pathologist for the New York State Police, gave his opinion on this, and he was given all the info about this case so he could assist with it. The reason he was chosen was because he is so well-respected in his work, like he's the goat of autopsies. Dr. Bader was involved in the forensics for Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., John Belushi, and also John F. Kennedy. He has performed over 20,000 autopsies in 45 years. According to caselaw.com, preliminary information provided to Dr. Baden was that there was three victims. The husband and father to the victims said he left the house one hour and 15 minutes before the police arrived at the house and found all three dead at 7.10 a.m. The police said the bodies were cold rigor mortis was present and there were changes in the color of the bodies. They were gray and also bluish purple. He said it is often difficult to establish a time of death, but in this case, it wasn't a close call. Dr. Baden said they were all gone well before Chris left the house. He also said since a long blonde hair was found on Gavin, This is transfer evidence. That shows that Sherry was strangled first. Then the hair was transferred to Gavin. Some DNA was found under Sherry's fingernails. It looks like just an analysis was done. It wasn't a a test to determine if it matched Chris. It just gives a general idea. So it did match a Caucasian male, and that's all that they can really tell. There wasn't any fingerprints or foreign DNA in the house. Chris's fingerprints are all over everything, but they're supposed to be. That's his home. On a conference call on May 19th, 
Dr. Baden gives police his final opinion. Sherry and the boys were killed before 5 a.m. and probably closer to 3 a.m. Sherry's friend Vanessa has a son named Brandon, and he was good friends with the boys. Vanessa said that Brandon made a Lego memorial for the boys with balloons and stuff and placed it in the Coleman's yard. She saw Chris go out and pick it up and put it in the trash can. She also said that she saw Sherry and Chris just two weeks before the murders, and they all hung out together. She said Chris was drinking heavily. Sherry asked him to get her something to drink, and he snapped at her, saying, Go get it yourself, you lazy bitch. Vanessa was stunned because she never heard him speak to her that way. Her fiancé was with her and was like, Okay, I guess it's time for us to leave. She and Sher- she said Sherry had been upset because Chris wanted a divorce, but was afraid that if he divorced her, he would lose his job at Joyce Meyers Ministries. As a side note, remember, this is a Christian organization and they can make whatever rules they want. I don't agree with it, but if you want the job, you got to be willing to deal with it. Employees likely have to sign some document at the beginning of their employment about keeping a clean image. Sherry doesn't want him to leave. Sherry asked her friends to pray for them since they were having trouble in their marriage. A friend of Chris's says Chris complained about his fast marriage and said he worked 80 to 90 hours a week protecting some millionaire he doesn't even like while his wife gets to sit home in this nice big house. During that first interview with Chris just hours after the murder, they ask him, does Sherry have a friend named Tara who lives in Florida? He says, yes. They say, well, what's your relationship to Tara? He says, she's just Sherry's friend. They say, that's it. You don't have any other feelings towards her. He says he flirted with her a few times, but that's it. Sherry and Tara were best friends in high school and still stayed in contact. They tell him he that they believe that he's lying. Now, Just because you have an affair doesn't mean necessarily you're guilty of murder, maybe a piece of shit, but they can't charge him with multiple murders without something tying him to the crime. Someone tipped them off that Chris had been having an affair with Sherry's friend Tara. So Joyce Meyer was doing this big gathering sermon in Florida, and Sherry had called Tara and said, look, my husband is going to this thing in St. Petersburg, Florida. He's Joyce Meyer's bodyguard, and he'll be right near you. You should go see him. And Tara does, and they hit it off. She eventually traveled with him to other conferences, and they met up for sex multiple times. He even bought her and him promise rings that they would wear, Chris was treating Tara like she was his wife. The two exchanged thousands of texts, photos, and sexual videos, even ones of him masturbating, which will eventually be played in court for a whole audience. He even made a list of all of her favorite things. It included Tara's birthday, height, eye color, shoe size, ring size, jean size, favorite flowers and perfume preferences, and her likes and dislikes regarding food and sports teams. It also had her dog's birthday and when she gets her period. It had her comfort foods, instructions on how to make her coffee, including the amount of caramel and skim milk. They had baby names picked out for their future children and even set a wedding date of January 2010. 
Police have been busy in the background, gathering all this evidence against Chris and building a case. They need plenty of solid evidence. Just saying he was having an affair isn't going to hold up in court. A jury is going to want proof of guilt. So they got it. Chris's cell phone records showed he took the long way home that morning from the gym. Chris's credit card history showed he purchased something from a hardware store. The police go to this hardware store and get a copy of the receipt. Chris had purchased several cans of red spray paint. They also had that email address checked out, destroychris at gmail.com. As it turns out, all of the emails that were sent to Chris were coming from his own laptop. In one of the emails, it says the word opportunities. They found an old email from years before that Chris had sent to Joyce where he used the word opportunities in it, but both words were spelled incorrectly but the same way. Instead of the word starting out as O-P-P-O-R, they both started out as O-P-P-U-R. A handwriting expert was brought in and compared Chris's handwriting to the red spray-painted letters all over the walls, and they were a match. Remember that security camera that Officer Barlow had installed in his house that pointed towards the Coleman's mailbox? Nothing was caught on it that morning. No one prowling around the house. It just sees Chris leaving for the gym and then the two officers approaching that morning trying to make contact with Sherry. But the most compelling evidence is the time of death being between 3 a.m. and 5 a.m. Chris was home at the time of the murders, and we know he left at 5.45 a.m. It's on the security camera. On May 19, 2009, this is just two weeks after the murders, Chris Coleman was arrested at his parents' home in Chester, Illinois, and charged with three counts of first-degree murder. The motive was that he had this wonderful life he was building with Tara, but he had his wife and children who were just in the way. Chris is going to go to trial. He has to give his story, and his attorneys need to fight for his innocence. After a bunch of delays, the trial began on April 25, 2011, in Waterloo, Illinois. Jurors were selected from Perry County to avoid the possibility of a biased jury. Joyce Meyer was even in court to testify for the prosecution. Joyce said that Chris called her directly on May 4, 2009. This is one day before the murders. He told her he was not feeling well and asked for the day off. She says that she could not recall Chris ever calling in sick prior to that occasion, and he had been employed with her for 11 years. A friend of Sherry's testified that Sherry told her Chris was not affectionate, not even while having sex. In fact, he would just say, shut up and turn over. He'd finish and tell her, don't think this means that I love you. This was all said out loud in court. Sherry told her friends how awful he was to her. Tara testified that Chris told her that on May 5, 2009, he was going to give Sherry the divorce papers. May 5th was also the day that they were murdered. She says that they had plans to take a cruise in the weeks following. Tara wore her promise ring that Chris had given her to court each day. Seriously, fuck this lady. As if it wasn't bad enough that she was having an affair with her friend's husband and shows zero remorse. She's just being shitty at this point. Also, Chris's dad, Ron, according to Fox 2 Now, he says that Sherry wasn't fulfilling her needs as a wife. So Chris went looking elsewhere. He says that that is something that's built into every man. 
He also said that Sherry didn't compliment Chris enough and that his son is 100% innocent. Chris says he's innocent. He says that the laptop the emails were coming from was a laptop that stayed at home and was shared with other people. Basically, he's blaming Sherry and the boys for sending those emails. Chris says he always uses his work laptop, which is not the one the emails were sent from. The prosecution says Chris is a man in a troubled marriage. He wanted out, but he didn't want to get fired for getting a divorce. He built this life with Tara and didn't have a way to really kick it into gear without getting rid of his wife and sons. Chris wants to wake up every morning next to Tara and attend his job as a security guard for Joyce Meyer, but he knows he can't have both of those things at the same time unless Sherry isn't in the picture. When Joyce Myers was on the stand, she was asked if she would have fired Chris if it was determined that he had an affair. She said employees of hers have been fired in the past for such behaviors. When asked if she would have fired Chris for getting a divorce, she said not necessarily. She said things like that are a case-to-case basis, and he would have likely gone under review, but it's not 100% you're definitely fired. In fact, she has current employees that are divorced. The defense team argued that someone hacked Chris's computer to send the threatening messages and snuck into the family's home on the morning of May 5, 2009, and killed all three victims. They say Chris has zero criminal history. They also noted that no red paint was found on Chris or his vehicle or anything he touched. Ultimately, after nine days, Chris was found guilty on three counts of first-degree murder on the two-year anniversary of the killings. One juror said what locked it in for her was the photos of Tara and Chris, including one of them out with their friends at Cheesecake Factory. It was a group of about 10 people. They looked like an average married couple. The date was October 2008, which was seven months before the killing. The jurors were told the affair started in November of 2008, which was a month after this photo was taken. The state of Illinois has the death penalty, which is a very real thing in this case. He definitely qualifies for it. There's a list of things required in order to sentence someone to the death penalty, and Chris seems to check every box. Even the prosecutor said, if not the death penalty for this defendant, then who? He waived his right to be sentenced by the jury and left the decision in the hands of the judge, who sentenced him to three life sentences in prison without the possibility of parole. The judge felt having years of self-reflection would be better for Chris. He was incarcerated at the Pontiac Correctional Center in, in Illinois, but then he was moved to Wisconsin for security reasons. He lives out his life in a prison cell with another man for 23 hours a day. His lawyer says that's a death sentence itself. Sherry, Gavin, and Garrett were buried in Chester, Illinois. At the time, Chris was the one who made the decision to bury them there. But in 2012, Sherry's family received permission to have all three bodies exhumed and moved to a cemetery in Chicago closer to them. This wasn't easy because Chris and his parents fought this, saying they needed to wait until Chris's appeals were over. They were granted permission by the court, and then it got blocked and so on. It took a while, but the bodies were finally moved. The headstone at the former cemetery was left there since it was paid for by Chris's parents. Her parents got them a new one. I don't know why this case 
doesn't get the attention that Chris Watts and Scott Peterson's did. He's just as big of a piece of shit as those two are. I think maybe it could have to do with the fact that people don't want to smear Joyce Meyer's good name. She testified she did her job in this and now she has to distance herself from it. Chris had the option to get a divorce. As Joyce stated, she would have reviewed his case. Even if she did fire him, he could have gotten another job, especially having been Joyce Meyer's bodyguard for 11 years. It would have been easy and the murders were senseless. Sherry would be 45 today in 2023, and Gavin and Garrett would be 25 and 23. Two innocent boys, along with their mother, who had their lives stolen from them by a monster they loved and trusted, they were only in third and fourth grade. Rest in peace, Sherry, Gavin, and Garrett. That's it for this week, and I'll see you all again soon. Take care, and much love to you all.